Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975, to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2021. And if you fast forward through any of the ads on this podcast, in one year's time, we will come to you and read those ads live. The movie, The Green Knight. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we're sending them up into space. Amy, we are at the end of our Contender series where we are looking at this year's Oscar nominees and going back and examining some of their earlier work. And what we felt would be a good end to this was to ask our audience what film that wasn't nominated is a film that you would like to hear us talk about. And we put out polls on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook and Discord. And I would say there was a very clear winner. It was surprising to me that so many people united around this movie because I think they feel the same way that you and I feel, that The Green Knight didn't get enough love this year for being such an inventive and cool film. And, you know, honestly... The reason why I'm surprised is because when we offered up an idea like Spider-Man or even James Bond, I thought, oh, maybe that that's where people want to go. But they really wanted to go here and also a strong second place finish for Annette, another one of my favorite uh, films of the year. Indeed. I don't know if I've ever seen the unspooled audience disagreed. This, yeah. this in unison, as though they've all circled around the round table and cast their rocks into the center and said, yes, we want Sir Gawain <laughs> and the myths of him and the Green Knight. And I I love it. That is why I love all of you. I love all of you. I love well, you all. I love, I love all of our listeners. And I'm also going to say that that is why I also feel like we need to address the elephant in the room, which is our listeners loved West Side Story. Oh. The one bit of feedback that I got from last week's podcast was, how dare you? 
How dare you uh, malign <laughs> such a new classic? And uh, to them, I say, that's the show. We have opinions. I'll malign it. Listen, the simplest way I feel like I can puncture a hole in West Side Story is if you really think that Steven Spielberg did a good job directing, not just making it look pretty, but directing, then wouldn't anybody ever be talking about the two leads and their love story? Be- nobody is. Nobody's talking about those performances, the center of the movie. Yes. I don't think he did a good job with that. Many people will say, I love the movie, but I didn't like this actor as the lead. Well, that's the lead of the movie. That's like saying Greece is great, but Travolta, not a fan of. Well, then what's the movie? You got to exactly. have a centerpiece. <laughs> Exactly. And I'm not a fan of just blaming the actor for it. The director okay. gets the performance out of the actor and he didn't get it. He didn't get it. So what are you going to wow. say? I oh, mean, yeah, you're going to get people His upset. Pretty sure people are going to get upset with you. We also uh, kind of shortchanged a couple of films and not our intent. I think that we were just going through so many and we wanted to kind of shine a light on the ones that we felt didn't get enough light shined on them. And then also, I think quickly just hit on the ones that we weren't going to talk about and why we weren't going to talk about them because they didn't do it for us, whether that was Nightmare Alley or, you know, and we didn't really talk about Drive My Car. And that, unfortunately, is because I had not seen it. So I couldn't really engage in that conversation. It's fine. When you have three hours to kill, you, you can catch up on it then. When you're stuck in the back of a car, it'll be a really good time to watch it. Okay, there we go. That's a ringing endorsement. Um, (laughs) Well, Paul, we can't move on without talking about the Oscars. I'll just embarrass myself first. I'll fall on my sword. My Oscar ballot, 23 picks. I got 12, right? This might be my worst showing in years. Wow. Well, because you vote with your heart. And you know, I picked two here live on air. I didn't look at any stats or figures and I was right. I want to just take that. I was right. But Amy, we can't talk about the Oscars without talking about one of the biggest Things that has ever happened that was so upsetting to me. The top five oh shit moments. Where (laughs) the fuck was this list made from? This is the worst list I've ever seen in my life. Why aren't people talking about this fucking list and the best movies of 2021? I didn't even know one of those movies. Minari? What What is that? As much as we... Do not trust the Academy to nominate the best films. The Academy just gave us a chance to say, you know who we don't trust? You, the internet, people of Mars. You guys do not deserve to also be voting on the best things because you're going to vote Zack Snyder or an NFT Johnny Depp movie. I guess what I was sort of upset about is how could the Oscars air that in good conscience? When you say these are the top five movie moments... Right. First of all, the Zack Snyder Justice League wasn't even released in a theater. So that's going to be tricky to be one of the, you know, the ooh moment. But give it that Speed Force, which I didn't even truly remember until I saw that clip. I saw I saw the Zack Snyder cut. I thought it was fine. Didn't remember that at all. Didn't remember that scene. I did a a two and a half hour podcast about it with Jason and the guys from Blank Check. I, I will say this much. I liked it as well. But you are literally shitting on film. And I think that that was the one thing that my takeaway from the Oscars, I didn't particularly like this year. I felt like there was a dig about animation. Like when those uh, three hosts came out and they were like, oh yeah, parents tolerate animation. I was like, what the fuck are we doing? And then like, was it um, 
uh, who came out and said they didn't see a movie? Oh, I haven't seen any of these movies. Uh, you know, it's like this idea, like, well, then why are you here? Like, we should be here because we love these movies, right? Like, and that's different than like saying, like, I like what Amy Schumer said. Like, Amy Schumer doing that joke about, um, Aaron Sorkin taking one of the funniest people ever and making mm-hmm. a movie without a single joke. Like, that's that's a joke. It's a point of view. It's not saying, why are you making movies? And I feel like there's a couple of moments here that just felt like they weren't embracing, like, like well, this is why we're here. We're not here to just shit on them. And well, when it, you... it, it felt self-deprecating and insecure. Like, Hollywood yeah. and the Oscars are terrified they're not going to exist or something like that. So they're making fun of themselves on the playground before anybody else can and therefore they Bodie McBoat faced themselves and had these like embarrassing Oscar moments of like people voting just nonsense that but they had again, to broadcast as though they were serious news. And and I think there was some stuff that I did like. I did like, and I guess people don't like this, but I'm going to say I liked it, which is like the in memoriam section where you actually could like, you have people talking about why these people meant something to them. Like that, that was like actually a really, I don't know if it's like the perfect format fully, but like just, you know, we've seen that montage of faces and I think we, you know, at least in every Oscar viewing I've been to, you're like, oh, oh, ooh. But it was nice to kind of hear, you know, Bill Murray talk about Ivan Reitman or, you know, to see somebody connect with somebody else. Like, I, I don't know. There was. I didn't mind that either. And I like that they put Helena in there so high up. Uh, that, that really yeah. touched me. I was really glad to see that. I also loved the way it was shot. It looked beautiful. And like, I like the way. The neon of the set. Yes. All those like crazy tubes everywhere. I, I I felt like the the speeches felt so personal. Like you felt like it it didn't feel like there was an audience or a stage. I thought that was really well done. I liked you know. Um, and let's talk about like some of the the awards. I mean, I I called Coda. Coda really had like a giant upswing. And I think you know honestly, I'm gonna go out and say that you know I feel like we gave Dune a little bit of short shrift last time. But I think I'm happiest that Coda won. In a weird way, I just felt like it was like the one that felt like the most earnest and different, didn't have celebrities in it. It was doing something interesting. It just felt like not trying to be anything more than what it was and kind of happened to become an Oscar movie. And I I, I thought that was actually really interesting about that whole run. Well, I think that a year from today, I'm going to ask you what won the Oscar and you won't remember that it was Coda. Mm. But that's par for the course, I feel like, the way the Oscars have been headed. I was right. actually glad to see that Dune won so many uh, technical things, but then confused to see that it didn't get uh, like a director nomination. Like I was just cracking up watching it, that they're just like, yeah, all of these great like composers and digital effects people, they just made this movie themselves without any guidance. That director well, didn't have a thing to do with it. That's the bullshit of like best picture, but not best director. Like, you know, it's like, it is this weird thing. It's like, well, how, well, that, the, okay, hold on. You're saying this is one of the best, pay, you know, it, it, it but it, we were talking about this in our last Oscar special. It's a hard thing to parse it, it. There's a popularity contest element to all of it. Like how can it be best picture, but not win best director? I like that they let some speeches go on longer. I thought that uh, Troy, the supporting actor, the dad from CODA, mm-hmm. uh, Troy Coster, I believe his name is, who actually I found out uh, after the award ceremony, uh, created the sign language language for um, the uh, Tuscan Raiders in the new Boba Fett show. Like oh, he, I didn't he's know been, that. And it's really, yeah. really beautifully done. I, yeah. I love. And um, he's been a big actor here in LA for a long time because you know we have that playhouse in NoHo called uh, Deaf West, and okay. he's been one of their main actors for a very long time. 
Yeah. So I, I, I was overall, I think, you know, I felt like it felt far par for the course. Like nothing was surprising is in regards to uh, who won. Right. I don't think there was any like there wasn't there was no shock to the point that you were just waiting to watch these like get togethers. It's like, okay, I like the James Bond montage. Interesting that they wanted to like put the hip hop score underneath the Godfather because I think that music is so iconic. But then I'm also like, but maybe that's me being an old man going like, I want my old music. What's the thing? It's like, you know, so I know people really slam that. I like seeing the cast of uh, White Men Can Jump and Juno uh come out i like that idea i liked uma thurman's like sophisticated white button-up top and black bottom combination that she wore the oscars her little nod to her dancing outfit i mean beyonce opening the show was great like i think there's a lot of really great things and unfortunately amy i will say that what we talked about in last week's episode was exactly what happened at the actual oscars which is we talked about the reaction to films being um very much a Twitter reaction, you know, like where you see these like hot takes like, oh, licorice pizza is about a pedophile. Like, and that's becomes the conversation or like, yeah. Jane no, Campion's- it's not about a pedophile. Yes, it is about a pedophile. And none yes. of that is actually about people like from people who've seen the movie. And then it's like Jane Campion talking about, you know, the Williams sisters and everything gets blown out. And I think, unfortunately, that's what happened with this Oscars. I think we took a lot of shine away from the night because of this event that happened. And I'm going to just go out and say I don't give a shit. You don't need to hear my hot take on what I think happened or what I like. That's people's business, whatever. The only thing I will say about uh, what happened there, in my opinion, is that's why you have hosts. Send them out there and figure that shit out. The fact that the award show went on and no one, I mean, Diddy did a little but, like, you needed everybody, like, you, I do think that, like, after that happened, we need everyone to go, ho, oh, let's chill for a second. Can we take a break? I know that everyone's like, like, we needed a shake it off moment. The whole last half of the Oscars or 40 minutes or whatever it was just felt incredibly compromised for all these great speeches, all these great wins. Obviously, Questlove gets the shortest end of that stick because everyone's on their phones. Everyone was on their phones until the end. It just felt like... It felt overshadowed by social media. And so what maybe in a weird way, what better way for this Oscars to be remembered than a year in which social media took over the film discourse? It took over the actual award show, too. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like my major emotion, I guess I'd say I had two. Like in the moment, I felt like a really strange, compelling swell of empathy for like everybody sitting in that room mm-hmm. who just had no idea what to do. When something crazy like that happens, nobody knows what to do. Everybody wants things to be okay. Everybody doesn't know what to do. They're paralyzed. They're awkward. But They're trying to smile things away. Nobody knows what the right thing to do is in like any moment at all the time. And I just kind of watching everybody's paralysis made me just want to exhale and like apply forgiveness to that whole crowd. That's why I feel like we needed a moment to like just take a breath And I don't know if Diddy was the perfect person for that. I think Jimmy Kimmel did an amazing job, I thought, during the moment where it was La La Land and Moonlight, right? Like, he just at least was like, I'm here. I think it maybe gives us all a little bit of empathy. Every single person involved, including 
Uh, you know, Diddy has to follow that, including, you know, Questlove has accepted Jada, Will, Chris Rock, everyone in that auditorium, everyone who had to walk a red carpet that night, everyone who had to accept the award after, like everybody I have empathy for because they lived through an event. Everyone was just trying to do their best. And I think a lot of it was just reconciling with it and, and trying to figure it out. And that's, I think that's what you've been seeing is people going like, oh, we saw something and we all have feelings about it, you know, and, and ultimately our feelings about it have nothing to do with what actually happened or what's going on between those two people. That's a different situation. I just think it's, uh, but it's like we all saw something and how it affected us and what our backgrounds are, I think make us have very strong opinions about what should have been done or what was right or what was wrong. But I think at the end of the day, if you strip all that away, it's just, we just feel empathy for everybody. And I, I think that's maybe the best takeaway. You know, I'm even going to have empathy for the baker who screwed up my cake that I was so looking forward to. I like I commissioned a cake that was going to say the Green Knight was robbed and I was really looking forward to it. And the, when I got there, the baker was in a hurry and she just did a bunch of squiggles and you can't see a single word on it that cake. It was really upsetting, but, that cake, Amy. It was really <laughs> uh, actually I don't have empathy for that baker because <laughs> that that feels like that should be something they could have done. I mean, the Green Knight was robbed is a lot to put on a cake that size. It was not a giant cake. I think yeah. you need to go like uh you know gk i don't know but yeah I, yeah you know yeah it's probably on me i probably shouldn't have had her also put roses on it because she did the roses first she spent such a good time making big roses that then she had absolutely no room and also decided to write in cursive <laughs> well i think that's uh, yeah who knows anyway well what do you say amy doth we unspooly <laughs> the year amy and let me take you back it's 2021. Oh, my gosh. What a different world. Uh, the January 6th insurrection on the U.S. Capitol ends in multiple casualties. President Biden withdraws all troops from Afghanistan. Juneteenth becomes a federal holiday and COVID-19 vaccines become widely available just in time for Delta and Omicron variants. The popular movies include Spider-Man No Way Home, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, The Suicide Squad and today's film the Green Knight. Amy, who's in it? I would ask you to describe it, but maybe just give us a thumbnail sketch of it. And uh, of course, what was on the radio? All right. The Green Knight. It is written and directed by David Lowry based on the 13th century poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, by the way, I just want to say right here, there are a lot of different ways to pronounce Gawain. We even hear a bunch of different ways in the film. In Mine the is, film? Yeah. <laughs> mine's probably wrong. Just saying that up front, let's soldier on. Uh, the simplest way to describe the plot is this. One Christmas, the Green Knight barges into King Arthur's court and suggests a game. Let's trade attacks. One person in the room can cut me, the Green Knight, anywhere you want. In exchange, one year later, I, the Green Knight, will do the same to you. Gawain, played by Dev, Dev Patel, takes the challenge, but instead of cutting him somewhere small, he cuts off the Green Knight's head, assuming that if he just cuts off his head, that'll end the whole game. But no! The Green Knight stands up and leaves, and now Gawain has to go on an epic journey that will end with his head getting cut off, or else no one back home is going to respect him. Take a listen. Another year nearly gone already. Have you thought what you will do when Christmas comes? Was it not just a game? Perhaps. But it is not complete. You truly believe you're sitting in a chapel, counting the hours, 
willing away the year waiting for me to come? Well, I do not know. You will tell me. You must seek him out. And if death awaits me? Oh, I do not know of any man who has not marched up to great death before his time. The Green Knight would have been released on May 29th, 2020, after premiering it that year, South by Southwest. None of that happened for reasons that you all know. So it was instead held over a year and released on July 30th, 2021. That delay allowed David Lowry to tinker with his edit even more. And that's tinkering that comes on top of the bold changes that Lowry already made to the original poem. I mean, stuff like reworking the character of the witch Morgan Le- Morgana Le Fay into Gawain's mother. You know, in the OG poem, Morgan is this witch who, like, at the end of it, takes credit for the Green Knight, claims that she made him just to play a prank on Queen Guinevere, who she doesn't like that much. Uh, but now, in the movie, her motivation is to make her son do something with his life in a way that's pretty destructive and regrettable. Uh, for better and worse, this Gawain owes his adventure to his mother, kind of like the opening lines in the top song on the Billboard charts that weekend of July 30th, it is BTS and butter. Smooth like butter, like a criminal undercover. Don't pop like trouble, breaking into your heart like that. Ooh. Cool shade, summer, yeah, owe it all to my mother. High like summer, yeah, making you sweat like that. Break it down. I love butter. I love butter. BTS finally gets some representation on the show. And Amy, finally... We can talk about this movie that I think you and I both really connected to. And I think offline, you and I were talking about this idea that there are so few adult films being made right now, like films that are just epic in scope, but also not for the whole family. And I think this movie is exactly that. This is a beautiful, big, epic film that I don't think is made for four quadrants. And that's a good thing. It is. I mean, I feel like right now we're kind of making movies for everybody and nobody. Like our kids' movies are also are made really for like adults to like them. And like our adult movies are dumbed down for kids and like everything is for everyone and it's all kind of a mush. So I like it when a movie comes out with a real clarity of purpose, like The Green Knight, which is, oh, do you want to watch a movie where you just like, zone into a really intense, beautiful epic about like heroism and people walking through the mud because this is your movie. Ta-da. And it's exactly who it is. And you, f- you don't feel the sense of anybody tugging on David Lowry's sleeve and saying, have you considered having a really adorable thing that could be a stuffed animal? Maybe you should do that. We need to make the fox in this movie a plushie so kids can put it on their <laughs> bed. And when you squeeze it, it shoots out a little bit of uh, hallucinogenic mushroom uh, juice to get the kids to go to bed in a, a wild fantasy so they can see giants <laughs> speaking to them. By the way, I would like that. Um, let me just say something about this film right off uh, the bat. I really liked this movie the first time I saw it. Like, to the point that I wanted to do it here on the show. But watching it again, I loved it even more. It is a movie that is so incredibly dense that going back in and kind of having a little bit of a lay of the land made it just unfold. It felt brighter and even more exciting to me. Like it really, this movie, and I haven't felt that way in a little bit, like rewatching a film that I just watched. I just watched this maybe two months ago, um, maybe a little bit longer. Time is all skewed now. But uh, it it just, wow, it felt like the first time again. <laughs> 
That is exactly how I felt. Like I saw this movie um, as a critic and then I went back the week it opened and I was like, I have to see this immediately again just to like sit here, grok, absorb and watching it a third time. It held up just as well. It's a strange combination, isn't it? Of a movie with not a lot of talking, not a lot of big scenes, you know, just sort of continuing on this one one path. And yet every single moment and look and line and thought and like tree branch rustling in the wind, I'm like, it's full of so much meaning. I want to write like a term paper on that tree branch. I want to write like a book about the way the fox looks at him. Like there's, it feels so heavy with like thought and implication. And yet it's not telling you what to think. And I think that, you know, we get in these modes where like The Shining, what does the desk mean? It's in the northern part of the room, and the northern part of the room represents Alaska. But Alaska at this point, what, you know, it's like, no, this movie, I think, lays out a lot of intentional things and keeps them vague all the way to the ending. And I think that's part of the fun of it, because you can kind of enjoy your own interpretations throughout. And no one's telling you that you're wrong, right? Yeah. You can walk away feeling like, I understand it, and it works for me. And that is... I love a film like that too, where we could, you and I could have a conversation and potentially we will, where we th- see things very differently here. And I think that the movie is so confident in what it is saying that it allows us to take whatever we want from it with us. That is exactly how I feel. Like, I don't know if my green night is the same as anybody else's green night. Yeah, I feel like yeah. I was able to kind of walk my own path through this movie, through a movie that is like so rich and so sparse at the same time, where I'm kind of like grabbing onto whatever part like interests me that sort of like hooks into my imagination the most. I don't know if my Green Knight matches up to David Lowry's. I don't know if it matches up to anybody, but I, I know that I love my Green Knight and it feels like I have the space to to believe in my version of the story as much as anybody else does. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Well, let's just start at the beginning here, because the opening of this movie is something that really got me the second time. You open on this beautiful, I believe it's a map painting, uh, you know, or it's this giant wide shot of this village, and I think... We are trained to be like, all right, our actors of this film are going to jump in and we are going to go off on this journey. And what happens is we pull back from this scene and find our actor behind a wall and in a very dark space. But this opening moment, I really just want to unpack it for a second because the the world is on fire. Right. Things are going on. We see, you know, a woman jump on a horse and escape out. Something is going on that is not right in this town. And then we pull back to reveal this, for all intents and purposes, sleeping child. Like somebody who is cut off from the world around him, living in his own bubble. 
and loving his bubble. You know, he's with the woman that he loves or at least lusts with, and he is blissfully unaware of this very heavy outside. Like, those two tones are really interesting to start off this film. Yeah, it's so strange, right? And you're just watching these animals move around. I mean, it, it can't. this is an A24 film, of course. Like, I don't think A24 is allowed to make a movie without a goat. There has to be a goat in there somewhere. I think it's, like, in their contract. I think in Slice we did not have a goat. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> okay, I don't think there's a goat in everything, everywhere, all at once. But there could be <laughs> in one of the multi-dimensions. But I like watching these geese boss around the goat. And they're sort of like, hey, get out of here, blah, 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 blah. Actually, this is actually one of the scenes that I... um asked David Lowry about when I when I interviewed him for um, the Overlook Film Festival this year. And he said that this is supposed to represent the, the very opening line of the poem, which is actually not about anything that's happening in uh, Gawain's town, but about Troy, about the fall of Troy in the Roman Empire. Like the, the poem opens up with like a stanza that basically says, after the siege and assault of Troy, when that burg was destroyed and burnt to ashes, thus Rome was built. And then it goes on to say that Britain was founded, and of all of Britain's kings, Arthur was the most valiant. So it's like kind of leaping back in time. Wow. But is that woman Helen of Troy? Together. I don't know. She could because be. the woman is the one who escapes on the horse. So I wonder if that's also a little bit of symbolism. Because I think also, again, playing with your conceptions of like how that would look, you know, you see a, a knight with a sword running, you know, after the woman on the horse. But there is. That's a really interesting, I thought that was so interesting that the woman jumped on the horse in that way that was, you know, uh, classically like the the leader in that moment. I thought it just already is playing with, you know, messing with your expectations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whatever it's doing, I feel like it's it's like flattening history and saying I can do whatever I want, you know? Well, you see, now already my green knight has changed <laughs> because in my mind, I'm thinking about this opening scene showing the collapse of what Arthur has built, right? This yeah. idea that Arthur is this benevolent uh, king who has this beautiful world. It's like, no, the world is on fire. And I, I'm looking at it going, I understand this idea Like we are living in a world that is essentially eating itself, right? It's like we are, we are destroying it, but we all are in our own little bubbles. And are we actually interacting with it? And part of this movie is about going off into the world and experiencing what the world has out there. And one of the first lines of the movie that I connected to, again, to drive forward my theory was, you know, uh, Gawain, one of his first lines is, I'm not ready. Yeah. And this idea, I think we all feel like I'm not ready to take on that, right? Like we all have so many things that like I can't deal with that today, the now, right? Because it, it is requiring so much of us to enter into this world where it feels like it is falling apart. Yeah, like it's all over Dev Patel's face that he's like a guy who's drunk and puking kind of and like dirty and smelly and like hanging out with his girlfriends, hanging out in this brothel, tossing coins to like his girlfriend, really clumsy, sloppy, not like a knight at all. You know, even though he's a highborn, he's not like what we picture as a knight, you know, making jokes about, I think, his erection. I mean, that's what, like, Christ is born indeed, right? It is. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. he's got a book. Yes. I mean, this is, this is not, like, our image of, like, a heroic knight. And it's perfect. I mean, it, it, it kind of dovetails with what we're told about him in the beginning and, like, kind of, like, zoom in where we see an image of him on the throne and he's on fire and you hear this voice. Look, see a world that holds more wonders than any since the earth. 
What that voice is saying straight up is like, you want to hear a story about heroism, like like King Arthur? Well, this guy is not exactly that. And it's like letting us know right away that he's a bit of a scrub. By the way, I feel like I should say, like, this poem is from the 1300s, but it's not set in the 1300s. Like, King Arthur and the, whole, and the Knights of the Round Table, all of this is a time period in the 500s. So we're actually leaping back even further still. Yes, and I feel like this is a, a movie that kind of plays with the time period in a way that feels a little bit more magical. Like I was thinking about uh, Lady Hawk or like Willow, right? Like those kind of films that feel like, oh, I'm, I'm of a time. I don't know exactly what that time is. And then as I was doing some research, I did find that there are some like nods to Willow or there was this idea that David Lowery came up with this idea when setting up a diorama of Willow action figures in his backyard. So like <laughs> this idea, like I, I, but you feel that. And I think that that kind of a film you don't often see anymore. Mm. Uh, although you we know, might be I've, seeing a whole Willow series right now on Disney plus. Oh, you know, I've never seen Willow because when I was a little kid, I went away to summer camp and my mom gave me like the movie novelization of Willow. Uh-huh. And the, the book got really into the details of like the death dogs chewing up children and tearing them apart. And I had nightmares all through summer camp because of that, like nightmares about dogs that I like. It's not that bad. Still have. Yeah, I've I've never had the guts to watch it. It was like too much. um, I will say something about this opening as well, because it's this opening shot before the the shot that we were just talking about, this voiceover. They say something really interesting. It's like, look, see a world that holds more wonders than any since the earth was born. And of all who reigned over, none had been renowned like the boy who pulled the sword from the stone, but this is not that king. And I know what you were saying before about it being like, this is not going to be that kind of tale. But I also feel like what they're saying is, I know you're used to a film where it's knights and they're fighting, but this film is going to embrace the wonders of the world, the magic. And this movie is a movie truly about magic. You said in the beginning, the idea of who is the Green Knight? And who is controlling the Green Knight? And it very much feels like his mother is the Green Knight. Like the mother has created this challenge for her only son. Like she is the puppet master of this entire thing. And we don't really understand where her powers are coming from. We don't really understand who might be completely magical versus who actually truly exists. I mean, it, there's such an element of hidden wonders that they kind of allude to right at the top that I really, really liked. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's something in like the tone of this movie, like the raw look of the wilderness that we go through and just the tone that it sets right on where you kind of feel like you're in a world that's so rough around the edges that anything could happen, right? Like, doesn't it feel like a like a version of civilization where so many layers of what we've built up on this earth have been pulled back and it's like we're closer to fairies and witchcraft and whatever kind of original magic there might exist in the earth? 
that's yeah, the way what? that I feel when I like look at this film. I'm like, oh yeah, it's like a world where like all the buildings have been pulled back, all the nonsense, all the distractions, and it's like it's a man and he's in the woods and anything could happen. Well, I think it's a also a movie about pulling back the for lack of a better term, like the Instagram lifestyle that we all live, right? Because I think when you think about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, it seems epic and beautiful and colorful. And here it's dank and it's, uh, it seems yeah, almost King Arthur depressed. looks sick. sick. Guinevere looks sick. Yeah, it doesn't look like the world that we know. And I think the way that, that kind of is executed throughout the whole film is Gawain is uh, truly not a hero. He's not a knight, right? He is a little scared. The only reason why he is going on this adventure is to get the the branding of knight so he would have this respect, right? It's, it, it, that's what's pushing him out there. That's what's making him go forward is to get this, you know, uh, this bauble, this jewel that would give him additional respect. But it's not, there's not, this is not a heroic journey. It is a journey that is forced upon someone. It's like you have to do this to make amends. Um, and yeah. I think that that's a really interesting version because we used to hearing like, I'm going on this quest, even like Saving Private Ryan, like we're going to go do this because we believe in this guy. We're going to go get him. And it's like, no, there, you know, even Dirty Dozen, where it is a, a bunch of people who, yes, they want to be out of jail, but there is this bonding like, God damn it, we're doing it. And here it's like it really is motivated from fear over anything else. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like here's where we should start even talking about like what he changed from the story, because mm -hmm. like, uh, I just feel like this film is so robbed for adapted screenplay. I mean, in the original poem, Gawain is like this perfect knight. He's like the ideal knight. He's like the Captain America knight, you know? And it's just like this crazy thing happens to him. Like Green Knight comes in. He's like the perfect knight. He feels like I should step forward. I will do this so that my king doesn't have to. My king's getting old. So the bulk of the poem is about this knight who is like the representative of what it is like to be ideal. And yet he finds himself in situations where there is no right answer. And so it's like, what happens when our ideals are too high? And in the original poem, like he goes to see the knight, um, the green knight, like decides just to cut his neck a little bit. It, the green knight is like, congratulations, you survived. This is all just a trick to test if you were as brave of a knight as we kept saying you would. He gives him a little scratch on the neck because he's wearing that magical sash. Um, that was supposed to protect him from dying. And then he sends him home. And when Sir Gawain gets home, everybody's like, bro, it's totally cool that you're wearing that magical sash. We'll all just wear green sashes now. This was kind of a ridiculous thing. It's silly that you had to do it. And this movie changes everything in a way that I think really enriches it. Because like, I mean, let's be honest, this quest is really crazy. And nobody in their right mind should agree to do it. But the only I'm reason why he's doing my... it be is because... He is forced. It's almost like doing it out of embarrassment. He has to do it to right. save face. And I think it, it, it stems... And so oh, that's sorry. where the crazy goes, right? The right. crazy isn't so much on what you're doing. The crazy is on why you would do a thing that's going to end in your death, which is this pressure. But that's so relatable. I think it's a timeless issue as well. It's, I mean, it's a basis for so many you know, rom romantic comedies like, oh, this misunderstanding or I have to make amends for this thing that I've done and I'm going down this path. I think we can all identify with that idea. But I think what is truly interesting about it is he tries to take a shortcut in the film, right? Sir Gawain, like he steps up. He is not a knight, but he steps up in this moment to basically like 
punch a kid or, you know, it's like, it's like, can you defeat this beast of a man who is literally kneeling at your feet, right? There's no challenge there. And he does the most violent thing you could possibly do to someone. He shows no mercy. You know, he basically is showing off. And then that comes to bite him in the ass. And I, I love that idea that like you get everything about this character by seeing that move. The knight kneels and he cuts off his head. Like, yeah, I got it's, this. It's like I'm pathetic, smarter than this. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. pathetic. It's not like heroic in the slightest. And he, he even seems mad that it doesn't feel heroic. You know, right. He's like, I want to do a brave thing to impress everybody. I just told my king that I haven't actually had an interesting life. I have no good stories to tell this guy. Maybe I need to do something more to live with my life. And he's like, okay, I'm seizing this moment, man. It's like, I'm going to do it. He's like a frat guy at a party. I'm going to cannibal off the roof into the pool. I got this. And in his moment of heroism that he's really hoping for, the Green Knight is kneeling in front of him to get attacked. It's not even a fight. He's just kneeling and going so mad. He's just yelling at him like, is this a trick? What is this? A trick. Stand up and face me! What do you expect me to do? And then, like, as such a sucker punch, he, like, cuts his head off, and he's, like, looking around, like, at everybody in the room. Am I, am I proud? Do I feel proud? Are you, are you proud for me? And people give him, like, these... Pitiful claps. And congrats, that's his reward. Now he has one year to live and then he has to go get his head cut off. Like, it it makes this desire to make yourself look good for a crowd seems so pathetic, seem like so empty. Like for, for this little moment of applause, he's now set himself on this path where he's, that's going to end with him getting his head cut off. And what I, and what's also so just absurd about it that I love in the story is the green knight isn't even like, Hey bro, cut off my head. The green knight is like, cut me anywhere. Cut right. me anywhere. You know, when you listen to his letter, like right here, when like the, the possessed Guinevere is reading it, He never says, cut off my head. He's just like, cut me. Oh, greatest of kings, indulge me in this friendly Christmas game. Let whichever of your knights is boldest of blood and wildest of hearts step forth. Take up arms and try with honor to land a blow against me. Whomsoever nicks me shall lay claim to this my arm. Its glory and riches shall be thine. But... Thy champ must bind himself to this. Should he land a blow, then one year and yuletide hence, he must seek me out yonder, to the green chapel, six nights to the north. He shall find me there and bend a knee and let me strike him in return, be it a scratch on the check or a cut in the throat. I will return what was given to me, and then in trust and friendship we shall part. Who then? Who is willing to engage with me? So it's like this escalation, right? Like, I'm, I, I can't just, you know, 
scratch your knee or something. I have to do the big dramatic thing. Like he brings it upon himself by like tough acting. It's like if he's his own jigsaw. Part of me wants to be like the Green Knight is like jigsaw. And he's like, I'm going to settle this up and I'm going to test you and I'm going to see if you're a good person. But it's almost like he is his own jigsaw creating situations where he gets tested and then like brings his own punishment on himself. It's it's I love it because it's not like just some giant alien comes to Earth and he's like, I will kill you if you don't kill me. He gets a choice and he chooses wrong. And that sets everything in motion. And again, that shows you everything that you need to know. And what better way to start a story than with a person who is perceived to be uh, someone who is stealing valor, right? Like at a certain level, that's what he's doing. And he waits and he, because he doesn't feel like it's coming back. And like, no, no, you, you got to go do this. And it's, it's, I read something where David Lowry said, part of this is this relationship that he had with his mom. Like he was a late bloomer and his mom kind of forced him out of the house. And you can see how if the mom is manipulating the Green Knight, uh, this is what she's doing. She's like, you need to grow. You need to learn. You need to figure out how to survive by yourself, how to live by yourself, how to make choices, how to not be coddled. Because he's ultimately a person who is dropping money on the ground. He is he is completely not present in the world. And again, going back to that opening scene, which may or may not now relate to what I thought. But I like this idea that the world is a hard, cold place, but doesn't mean that you should interact with it. It means you have to interact with it to understand who you are and who you want to be. And I think that this whole movie is driving to that point. I mean, all the way to the end, we'll break down the end in a little bit, but the idea that every decision here is teaching him how to be a hero or how to be a coward. And that, and I think that like you, he is, we are watching him forge his own personality, which is a really interesting thing because I think we are used to seeing this idea of like the man child and he's not a man child. It almost feels like he's a blank slate, you know, and he, and it's not like, oh, he's so rich. He doesn't understand how to ride a horse. So he doesn't understand. He's never got dirt on his clothes before. It's not that it's, he has never really been forced to make a decision or see consequences in such a way. And that to me is so, uh, exciting as far as like a journey of a character well yeah and you get the sense that like none of this is going to plan for anybody right like the way that his mom collapses when he chooses to cut off the guy's head you get the sense that she wasn't thinking he was going to do that you know, she was just going to give him some kind of kind of softball put like a, a t-ball on a stick and let him hit a home run in front of his uncle and impress him like that she's upset that he took it this far she has to make him that green belt to try to protect him from her own thing that she's set upon him that this is all just completely getting like spun out of control really fast. And it it all feels like a silly exaggeration. I mean, immediately they're, they're, they're doing puppet shows about him. They're painting his portrait like he's a hero. When you look at that portrait and you're like, that's not him. That's like this exaggerated hero that this guy right. isn't. And they're all painting this picture of a guy that he's not, you know, like it's like if all you had to do is jump in front of this guy and like, cut off some kneeling person's head to become a hero, it seems to sort of work for this town. Well, is that, like, the, is that the carpet then, that we're ripping out from under King Arthur? Like, because it does say in that opening monologue, this story isn't the story of the man who pulled the sword from the stone. And are we also led to believe like, oh no, this is the same myth like that Arthur has fallen into. And that's why his kingdom is in disrepair. That's why he looks sickly. Like, no one is the painting. No one is the myth. It's it is what society kind of puts on us. I think it's 
uh, not to make it all about current day, but this idea that when people fall from grace in our world, it's because they have somehow led people to believe something about them. And then when they're revealing something else about them, we're like, oh, wait a second. I think it's saying something really truthful about our culture, which is like the people who fall out of grace in our culture oftentimes are perceived in a certain way. And then you see them in a way that we aren't expecting. And we're like, wait a second, you tricked me. But the truth is society tricks us. For example, I'm just going to go for an easy target and say like Mel Gibson. Everyone's like, oh, Mel Gibson's the best, the best. He's the coolest. And then you see these like, you know, you hear these voicemails. You see these interactions with police officers. Now, is Mel Gibson changing or is our perception of him changing? Like who made the perception of Mel Gibson being a cool guy? Oh, press and interviews. And same thing with like Tom Cruise. We love Tom Cruise. He's so cool. Then he jumps on that couch. He's crazy. Why is he like this? Like, I don't think the person is changing, but the way that society is viewing them as changing. It's, and I think that that's a really interesting point of view. Like many people could look at him and go hero, 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 but we get to see he's not a hero. He is not worthy of these stories. Like everything that we know, history is written by the victors. So he gets to paint himself as this benevolent, amazing person or society does, but it says nothing true about what he actually is. I mean, in a way, that's an argument for the original poem to be more forgiving than current society. Because the original poem is like, yeah, you screwed up. You wore the magic belt. You didn't actually try to get your head cut off. And we love you anyways. You're still the best of us. And today we'd be like, screw you, you asshole. And I think that the way that David Lowry frames this film is from our era. You know, he makes it more like, oh, no, there is no place for you in this society if you don't do it right. Like, even if you lie... this lie will still catch up to you. Like you can't, there is no shelter. There is no sort of room for human error in this movie. Just like I think there isn't a lot of room for human error in today's society. So it is weird to think of this like, I would want to say like ancient barbaric time with strict chivalric codes being more forgiving than ours. And I also think it's this interesting relationship of a mother and a son, right? This We talked about this a little bit in Boogie Nights, the way that, you know, Dirk Diggler's mom interacts with him. And, and one of our, one of our friends that we love, uh, I don't know if, I, I don't know if we should mention his name because, uh, I didn't ask him before, but he was talking about this relationship between Dirk Diggler and his mom and this idea of this really conflicted, like she wants to fuck him. Like there's an energy there that that's part of the issue of his complicated relationship. She's mad that he's going out. And I never really thought about this because he was saying that the idea, which is kind of cleverly hidden in Boogie Nights, is that Dirk Diggler is be like is the most sexual man. Like you can't help. And that's like answered my question about why uh, Julianne Moore wanted him to like come inside of her is because she can't help. It's like everyone is like driven crazy by this man. And I think there is this this energy in this movie where this mother has the same kind of relationship with Gawain because she, I'd, I'm going to argue that she takes the form of his girlfriend and then presents her as this queen in the forest who then, you know, has this very, like, has this sexual relationship with him. And then, you know, she's constantly, like, literally fucking with him and also, like, you know, physically fucking with him. Like, she, and she's just in this very complicated thing of, 
wanting him not to be with the girl that he's with, but also wanting him to be better. It, like, so I think there's something really interesting here about mother and son relationships. Uh, and I was when I saw that, I was like, oh, it, it does have like an element of that Boogie Nights. I wanted to get that Boogie Nights theory in here, too. So uh, but I mean, did, but do you feel that with the mom that the mom is like she wants to like hurt him and fuck him and and help him? And it's like it's a it's it's an incredibly complex relationship. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if I could tell you with any sort of certainty who all the mom is like, is the mom the fox? In this, in, in here, is she I think the like mom is everyone. the blind woman? Yeah, is she in the castle? Like, is the mom, is she like the, the mother earth surrounding him? Everything well, he sees on the globe? Do you like, see that moment whatever. at the end where like when when uh, Gawain goes in to see the Green Knight, the camera's on the Green Knight's face and it's just sitting there like Green Knight's sleeping. And then really subtly, every character in the movie's face is on the Green Knight's face. You know, I didn't notice that. And I had to go back and like rewatch that. And I like was really studying and I was like, oh, there it is. But yeah, like the Green Knight kind of cycles through almost, I don't know, like you're choosing your Mortal Kombat character or something. Yes. Like that. And ends on and, and ends on Dev Patel's face. But it's a, this idea that I think everybody that we've interacted with has somehow been manipulated. Like everyone has been cast in the story by... The mother. I, that's what I think. Yeah. I, I feel like I feel like that's yeah, what because her I feel power like you hear is. the yeah. mother's voice, like when you know, say when he goes to like the second castle where he's got the queen version of his girlfriend, and she's like telling him what she thinks green means to her. And I feel like you hear kind of that that rumbling witch voice in her. Yes. When you go, your footprints will fill with grass. Moss shall cover your tombstone, and as the sun rises, green shall spread over all. In all its shades and hues. This verdict we will overtake your swords and your coins and your battlements and try as you might, all you hold dear will succumb to it. Your skin, your bones, your virtue. But what I love about all of this is it means that, to me, the mother's motivations are not super clear and don't seem to hold together. And that feels incredibly believable to me. You know, like I don't buy things where, oh, can I just rag on Corella again? Where Corella's like, Dalmatians killed my mommy and that's my motivation for everything. Like life is not like that. And so I, I love a movie where it's just like, you're chewing on nine different ideas of what's motivating the mother. And even she's like, I don't know how this is going to work out, man. I'll see if this belt helps him. But then this guy's going to steal this belt. Uh, maybe I can get it back to him. Maybe he shouldn't wear it, though. I don't know. It also is kind of perfect because the mom has the same energy that Gawain has. Makes a very bold choice. And then it's like, oh, shit, I shouldn't do that. Uh, let me do this. <laughs> and, uh, fuck, I did that. Now let me do this. Uh, okay, well, I got to... Like, like, she is... He is the son of that woman, like very clearly. I mean, I love that. I love that ambiguity about everything. And what I really just gravitate to so much in the story is like, I don't know if this is how you were taught the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Like I kind of was taught it slapdash in high school uh, where it was just like, here's Sir Gawain. He is perfect. This is how we understand like courtly love and, you know, the kind of games that people played in these novels. Like, I mean, you could say that, Sir Gawain, this poem, like, is kind of a mashup of these genres of stories that people were telling all the time in the 1300s. One of those stories was, like, uh, 
this beheading story, there were a lot of stories about like, oh no, I just made a pact that said it would get my head cut off. And in most of the stories, the guy never gets his head cut off, but it's like the drama the whole time. There's also a bunch of stories about, you know, people making this like gift exchange pack, whatever you're given, I will give back to you. And so this kind of mashes those two together. And then there's like this third story that's really popular um, that's also put in here, which is about um, ladies tempting knights to break their chivalric code. Because if you're a knight in the 1300s, you're stuck in this really tricky place where you're never allowed to say no to a lady. Like if a proper lady makes a request of you, you're supposed to say yes in any way that you can. However, a lady could make a request to you that would then cause you to betray a lord and do something dishonorable. And this is where like Gawain gets trapped, you know, because these two things don't always reconcile, especially if a lady is like, make out with me. And so in the poem, Gawain's like, oh man, what do I do? And what he does is like every time the lady kisses him, he actually does kiss her husband. He keeps giving her husband the kisses. There's not a hand job in the poem the way that there is here, but there's a lot of kissing that man. And the one right. way that he doesn't, the one thing that he does do at the end is he doesn't give the man the belt, which is the one time Gawain is like less than ideal. And to me, that's where the poem is like, oh, this, these standards we have for these people are just too high. You really want him to give away the one thing that's going to save his life? Like this is Gawain. Look how hard he's trying to do the right thing. So all of these types of storytelling are like mashed up in here. I mean, it, it, it is kind of like a mashup movie. It's almost like a, I don't know, Spider-Man, Spider-Verse sort of 1300s poem of all of these ideas that people were obsessing over at this time. Well, I think it's the idea, too, that, that you know, history is muddy and complicated and there's no good people or bad people. Black and white is not a thing. Like, no one is all good and no one is all bad. I mean, I'm sure someone will say, well, wait a second. And sure, like, we can have that conversation. But don't let's you just dare say, like, say Mother Teresa. I'll get uh, to Oh, no. But let's just say, like, overall, everyone, if you are a person living on this earth, there are things about you that are probably amazing and interesting, and there are things about you that are bad, and to varying degrees on both ends. Um, And I think that this is also this idea of freeing ourselves from this idea. Like, And I think the, the end of this movie is that idea that, like, I understand why I'm making this decision. And I think a lot of the times in life, we may just make decisions because we feel like that's what the way that people want us to be. That's the way that people expect us to be. But very rarely are we making a decision where we fully understand why we're making the decision and don't care about the consequences or the perception of that decision, right? Because I think a lot of the times now, a lot of our decisions are made because, well, it's the right thing to do, or I should be involved in that. But, you know, I think a complicated person will even be at odds with what they feel about in certain things. You know, it's like, I don't think you have to be all one thing. And I, that's what I love about the end is like, yes, does he get his head chopped off at the end? I mean, what do you think? I think he might. I think he might get his head chopped off in the end, which is a drastic change from the original story. I think yeah. that I think that Lowry is like, honestly, if we really play this out, maybe we should be happy for him that he gets his head cut off because he lived up to his promise. And and that's what we expected him to do. Right. And he, I mean, in a weird way, the, the Green Knight shows him the world like this is the world that you go back to. Uh, you go here, you run away. 
and then you live your life a coward. And like we get to see this like this giant like what if section, like this beautifully shot. I mean, this Beautiful. movie, and we haven't really talked about the cinematography in this, the the costumes the in this. Amazing. And the music. This, the music. It like this end sequence that just is this evolving. It looks like um like one of those trippy art exhibits, like where it's like, ooh, it's morphing from a flower into a house into a person's face. Like there's this beautiful what if where you're seeing how that decision, that running away decision, like starts to paint everything. And yeah, whether and or gosh, not that's you really get to see in Dev Patel's face like so much life. Like yes. he, he, I feel like he doesn't have more than what, fifty lines in this movie? That's an exaggeration, but like his eyes just change from like callow to nervous to scared to bold to like cynical and dark. Like he contains so much in his face in that silent montage. And in that last moment where he decides to to basically kill himself. I mean, he 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 frees himself from this because he doesn't deserve like he doesn't deserve to be unkillable to a certain degree. But I guess what I'm what I think about that ending is he gets to see everything and I can't outrun this choice. I'll always be this kind of a person. And so there's a world in which we say, okay, maybe that was that was the test. And maybe he does get a nick and then he goes back and his whole life has changed because, you know, the post credit scene, you saw the post credit scene. There's a post-credit scene in this movie at the very, very end, if you stay through all the credits, where the king's crown is on the ground and a young girl comes and picks it up and puts it on her head. And this idea that I think many people believe that's Gawain's daughter becoming the next leader, the next king. And there's an argument in there where you say, his family abandoned him in the what if scenario, his family abandoned him and they left. But in this scenario, the crown is on the ground as if, you know, when he died, the the crown rolled to the ground, but the daughter's there to pick it up. And I wonder if that's also saying he actually did live a good life and his daughter wants to become this king. Not like I'm next in line. It's like, I looked up to my father. I want to be this. And I died with my family around me instead of alone, which is what we see in the what if. So that is that is a way you can look at the end, the post-credit scene. It's very deep, very deep in the credits. Um, but there's something interesting about, I think either, which, either way that you want to go, I think they're both valiant choices, which is I'm going to die here because it's the right thing to do. And I saw my life or I learned so much here that I'm never going to be that type of person. And I'm going to really make a change. I'm going to be that person who is going to work for the good of the people and care about the people. Because how can you care about people if you don't care about yourself? It's like what we say in those uh, those better help ads. You know, how do we expect to interact with people if we are not uh, engaging with ourselves? Wow. I mean, I guess in either reading of that. There is no reading where the Green Knight is a villain, right? Like, even though he's a guy who's like, right. I'm going to cut off your head. He's he's just sort of there to push and prod to shape. Well, like a know. good parent, like a good parent. A yeah. good parent doesn't tell you what to do. A good parent just says, you know, it embraces, holds holds the feelings for you. Are you upset? Why are you upset? Let's talk about it. It doesn't say, you know, I think I, as a parent, I strive to... Not tell my kid what to do, but to 
allow them to make their own decisions on what feels right. You know, sometimes they make the wrong decisions. Yeah. Sometimes they make the right, right one. But what I love, though, is the Green Knight, when he finally, like, arrives at his chapel, the Green Knight isn't, like, this gigantic figure of, ho, ho, now I shall smite you, I can't wait, I'm angry, I'm violent. Like, he plays it almost, like, underwhelmingly calm. Like, of course you came back. This is what you were supposed to do. And I, I love how even the bigness of this moment seems to be stolen from Gawain. Like, it makes it seem even more pathetic that, like, he's sort of been pressured to do this entire act, go this whole way, be killed by a green knight who's like, you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Yes! Then I shall get to hacking. Wait! Wait! Huh? Is this really all there is? Is this? What else ought there be? Goes back to the first line of the movie. I'm not ready. Are yeah. you ready? You know, and that's it. It's beautiful. Yeah. But I read that like David Lowry told uh, Ralph Einstein, the guy, the guy who's the voice in The Green Knight, that he wanted him to play the scene sort of like Santa Claus. And to me, that makes it seem like maybe a demonic Santa Claus. I'm like, I mean, if that's Santa Claus, that's like the Santa Claus from A Christmas Krampus. Story who's like terrifying. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. like a ancient, creepy Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. But then I was just like dazzled because I like I was like, oh, my God, Ralph Einstein. I know exactly who that is. I'd forgotten. He's Finchy from the original Office. Yeah, he's like the ultimate terrible, bad, misogynist boss. Oh, with just that great voice. Here's Finchie. Kisses for a quick. What do we get for a tenner? Oh, no. Squeal, piggy, squeal. <laughs> that, that made me so happy when I realized I love that he was that voicing Finchie the Green Knight the whole way. By the way, the Green Knight design is really amazing, too. Just to talk about, like, the way that that character is... Uh, you know, this, again, we're talking about magic being such a large part of this film. Like, thi like this is, oak in this world, we have this tree man, like the Green Knight. I don't know if in the, in the original poem, is the Green Knight a knight, or is he this Swamp Thing-esque creature? Yeah, sometimes the way he's been described is like, like he's wearing crazy silks and furs, like he's like a, mm -hmm. like a dandy, like fanciful okay. looking. Um, but he seems to be embodied more like a human in the poem. He's like, he looks strange and doesn't look like he's from around here. And he is, I think, in all green and colorful things, but he doesn't seem to be so much nature. And I think this film leans into nature. Well, I think that's like that Alicia Vikander monologue about the green will take over. It's almost like it's... It's almost like the the, the story of uh, I Am Legend. Like, you know, once the humans leave, the green will... Give a, you know, we will go back to a, a, a cleansing earth. You know, the war will eradicate all of us and then we can start fresh again. The green will never die. Yeah, but you even see it like on his crown in that montage of his potential future. Like it gets more and more tarnished and green. Like it just mm -hmm. overtakes everything. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a delta. 
because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members, because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The bulk of this movie, though, we should just say, like, his whole journey, that's really only, like, two stanzas of the original poem. Like, the original poem just basically says, So many wonders did that night behold that it were too long to tell the tenth part of them. Sometimes he fought with dragons and wolves, sometimes with wild men that dwelt in the rocks, another while with bulls and bears and wild boars, or with giants of the high moorland that drew on near to him. And David Lowry kind of took that segment and was like, okay, let's really explore all of this. Like, let's show the giants. Let's, like, figure out all of these detours. Like, they mention in the poem that he goes by this famous well. And so David Larry was like, what is this well? And he looks into it. And the well itself is based on this like healing well of St. Winifred. You know, there's that little section here, like mm-hmm. Winifred, the girl who gets her head cut off. I actually thought that was a Vikander as well, uh, because I felt like, I was like, is that? And then I realized it was not. It was not. But it's kind of, it works on like two levels. Like one... St. Winifred is this real myth in Catholic um, mythology. You know, she's this woman who said she wanted to be a nun. And this guy who wanted to sleep with her was so mad that she became a nun that he cut her head off. But then luckily, this St. Winifred, her uncle was also a saint. And so he put her head back on and it managed to like stick. And then he made the ground like swallow up and like kill her murderer and like send him to hell or something like that. But she has this connection to like healing water. And this, you know, dates back. It's like actually still a well you can go visit. Um, so in the poem, he like walks by the town where the well is and David Lowry kind of spins out to tell the story of St. Winifred, but not make it about St. Winifred at all. What I love about the story that he spins out is like, here we have this whole movie that, that's basically about what is it like to have the pressures of being a male hero, you know, to do something great, you have to go and risk getting your head cut off. But here is just a woman who's not really so much a saint in this telling of it. She's like a ghost. She gets her head cut off by a guy just like Gawain. You know, really pointed. She says that. The Lord came seeking shelter like thee. Perhaps he was thee. Was he? No. You certain? Yes. This Lord sought to lay with me. I fought him off, but he returned in the night. And broke down my door. I tried to flee, but he cut off my head. He threw it in the spring, and now, try as I might, I cannot get at it. And in, and in return, she's not famous. You know, nobody's, like, worshipping her in this version of this world. She's just a woman who gets murdered by a man. And there's this idea of, like, women going through punishments and not being celebrated for them. And I mm. feel like that gets really laced in here subtly. Like, not even everybody who gets their head cut off is a hero, well, you know? yeah. I mean, I would also say that, like, that act of service that he does to someone who is, and I'm putting it in quotes, like, not important, you know, not a hero, not a, you know, is more of a a moment for us to see growth than anything else. Like, he doesn't have to do anything. Like, he doesn't have to engage with her because she doesn't 
you know, truly represent anything, right? You know, whereas you see the, the you know, the moment before where he's trying to deal with the, uh, the Barry Kagan character, like, it's like the, he has something that he wants. But, like, I like that moment because by devaluing her, like, worldwide importance, it actually means that he's learning to care. Yeah, exactly. Like, this script, I think, is so smart in how it found places in this story to insert real women who could have been around at the time. I mean, this whole mm-hmm. character of Essel is not in the play. You know, and Essel, I love, you know, the other version of the of the woman played by Alicia Vikander, who, by the way, says lady in just the most amazing way. What will you say if I asked you to make me your lady? The lady? Your lady. I mean, he invents this whole new character who's there to show us a lot. Like, she shows us the pressure that... Gawain feels to marry well or like that he can't be seen with the girl that he really loves and that in this like alt world even he's gonna take his baby away from her and like he can't be seen with this woman like the kind of social standards that he holds himself to and how but much only it only her. in the coward world well but not really because even in the modern world she's like will you marry me and he's like eh. and you just see in her face that he's like disappointing her because she knows he's actually not strong enough to do it. And also Essel, I feel like is the only one, maybe because of her like status in this world to say this quest you're going on is really dumb. I don't understand why you would even do this. Like she's kind of this voice of practicality. That's not, you know, here otherwise. Are you really going to go? Should I? I like your head better where it is. I gave my word. I made a covenant. This is how silly men perish. Or how brave men become great. Why greatness? Why is goodness not enough? Because otherwise everyone's really telling him he has to go. Like he, you know, he turns to his uncle, to King Arthur, and he's like, wasn't this just a game? And his uncle's like, no. No, it's not just a game. Like, I really want you to do something with your life. And it's like the people who are his family sort of embrace the fact that he has to go die. And they're not like willing to let him off the hook for it. And it's like the girl that he's dating, she's like, all of these people are acting crazy. This like royal code that you guys have put on each other does not make a lot of practical sense to me. Well, yeah. And I mean, this idea that everything is in opposition, the idea that, you know, Gawain goes through that field where like, oh, this is where King Arthur fought so valiantly to keep everybody back. But all the bloodshed and death that you see in that field is like, well, yes, to come back a victor, you also have to do so much slaying. And is that all these dead bodies, is that truly what makes a hero? I mean, they're going through like this live graveyard, like so many people died here. And, and and that even seems like something of like myth, right? Because the King Arthur that we've just seen is way too weak to have just killed 960 mm-hmm. people. Like they're just telling more stories about this guy that aren't even true. Right. Or but the idea that like, you know, you talk about like Putin, like the idea that Putin can show himself in a way of being strong. I'm going to be shirtless on a horse, you know, but <laughs> is he truly or is it coming out of fear, acting out of fear to take this power back because he knows that truthfully what people in Russia are seeing is this really positive force in Zelensky and the fact that the people can take over a leader that's not treating them well. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's out of yeah. fear. A lot of these moves are made like, <laughs> they, you know, wanting to yeah. hold on. And, and I think that like a, a leader, especially back then is, is ruling in just to stay 
afloat, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, and, you know, and this, and this idea, like, I mean, by the way, I did read this, so it's not my own point of view, but this, uh, this scene where he's going through the field is a little bit of a tip of the hat to Barry Lyndon as well. Cause like Barry Lyndon in, uh, in that film, uh, has like a similar little moment where he, he meets up with these, uh, these like kind of scoundrels on the, on the road. Yeah. By contrast, when I was in Ukraine, the number one thing I saw with Putin's face for sale in it, this is in 2016, was toilet paper. They're really into toilet paper with Putin's face on it there. But back to that battlefield scene. I mean, like, actually, this is based on kind of a myth about Arthur. I went on a deep dive about Arthur, like, Mm -hmm. cut reaction. Arthur, real king, not real king. Well, now that you're asking me, I'm going to say not real. Not real. But I, I always but assumed I, it was real. I mean, I would have, only because you asked me that, I'm going to say that. But I, yes, I, I uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I would have thought real king too. Yeah, I wish I could have figured out a way to ask you that, that didn't tip my right. hat. But I mean, but you know what I was realizing this time? I'm like, this is all Greek mythology. This all feels like Greek mythology. That's exactly it. Like kind of the history of Arthur, this like idea of the great king that we've been holding up. I mean, here's the whole backstory. Like, He's supposedly this great fighter who was battling the Saxons around like the 500s, you know, when like the Saxons were trying to invade Britain and he did allegedly like kill a bunch of them. But there's he's sort of not a king at this time. He's kind of seen like a Hercules. So exactly like Greek mythology. And um, he's not even that present in like most of the poems from that time. You kind of get little scraps of like this Arthur who killed 960 people. It's not until 600 years later when this book comes out called The History of the Kings of Britain, um, is published and they elevate Arthur to this king. And this like historian kind of quotes around it, kind of invents Guinevere and Merlin and Excalibur and Camelot. And he invents all of this backstory about King Arthur that isn't really f- proven in historical texts. And then the writers of that era took what he wrote and spun it out into all of these other stories about like the Holy Grail and Lancelot. And they created this whole universe of like Knights of the Round Table. And when you think about it, it's actually a lot like today in Marvel comic books. They took these figures and they're like, okay, we can do anything in this universe. We have all of these characters to play around with. There's versions of these stories where like they fight cat monsters or guys who have like dog heads on their real head. And they took all these kind of stories that they even told and replaced it with like King Arthur. I mean, it's really funny because it means that like, There's like so many stories about Gawain. I mean, kind of my favorite is like, there's not even just a Gawain. There's like one of Gawain's enemies is called like Gaswain. And Gaswain does stuff like take Gawain's sister hostage. There's people called like the Fairy Knight and the Black Knight. There's a guy called Escanor the Large, and he has a nephew called Escanor the Handsome. I mean, these stories are wild. But what I love about it is like, I find that we in the Western canon especially have taken these ideas about like honor and knighthood and round tables and Gawain and Lancelot as kind of our foundational myth for what like being a hero looks like. You know, these are the templates for real heroism. But as far back as we can go in history, it's always been made up. And we've always just been telling myths about people. And there is no kind of grounding of what real heroism looks like based on real people. Mm. I guess is what really interests me. And so I just well, feel because like we create the story. The story is so much more interesting than the complicated nature of who we are. I think we're just fascinated by this idea of like the overnight success. Like we want everything to be an overnight success, but truly anything that really pops, like really, really pops. Like if you look around it, someone has been there doing the work 
before you realized it. It's a, like, I, but I think we want this idea. We want this simplicity of like, oh my gosh, if I just do this, like anytime you get like a letter or anything, people are like, how do I, how do I review movies for the New York Times? Yeah. Like as if you could say, oh, it's simple. What I did was I wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times. I said, can I review movies? And they said, yeah. And like, thank you so much. Let's go. Like, no, you worked, you have a career that you have done that got you recognized. It's like, it's, it's not like, you know, I think people always are looking for like the shortcut. And I think what we often do is we mythologize shortcuts and we start to be like, oh, they just did this. They were in a bar. They got found out and that was it. And then that was it. You know, it's like it's it, we want, you know, we want to just build it so quickly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been like working on that book about like the history of this house of actresses that's yeah. gigantic. And one of the things I've loved in my research is like all of the stories we've said about how an actress gets discovered have pretty much always been fake, even going back to 1916. You know, even when Hollywood was like a thousand people and some horses, it was still impossible to get discovered naturally. Like it's always been like, who do you know? How but the are you story connected? is so much better. It's like, it's so much better to be like, they were at the malt shop and they were drinking a thing yeah. and that's how they did it. You know, uh, you know, I, I just think it's like, yeah. We love, but we like, love my it. My uncle had this job, and he knew, and he knew this guy. We don't often celebrate hard work. We celebrate success, and it's a weird thing because I think a lot of people are like we want to pride ourselves on hard work. We work hard, but it's like no, no, no. We really just want to pride ourselves on that. It's the Joe the plumber moment. I probably have mentioned this a million times because I'm always obsessed with it. But this idea, like. When Joe the plumber talked to Obama during when one of the election cycles, he's like, well, what about me? Am I, you know, is my business going to be taxed because I make a million dollars? And then you find out like, well, Joe the plumber is a bankrupt. Like it's like, but he's worried about when he becomes a multimillionaire, the amount of taxes he's going to spend. And it's like, we're so concerned about that level of success that like, oh, we're, we're, you know, but not like... <laughs> Not like, hey, thank you for helping me keep the doors open to my business. You know, like it's like we don't want to be seen as somebody who work, who's achieving success. We just want to have we want to have success. And that's that's it. Like the, like the journey is is not really part of it. Yeah. And this movie is all about the journey. It's mm -hmm. all about like seeing the cost of that journey on Dev Patel's face. You and know, that's, it, it yeah. like really humanizes this. Story. And to it, me, I like to read this movie as basically like. Everything we say that a hero is supposed to do and be is bullshit. You're like, yes. all of our pressures are nonsense. And, and wouldn't I, it be better if we could see, like, wouldn't it be better to see, like, the choice that you thought would be a good choice and then you'd see how it played out? Like, he's gotten the best gift of all. The Green Knight, the mom, births the best idea, which is, like, see the world that you would make because you think this is a good decision. Like, I would love to have that button. Like, what is, let me just see ahead. Oh, fuck. Right. I'm not doing that. Like, he's gotten the best <laughs> gift, the best gift he's ever gotten. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many things in this movie that I want to, like, lick some magic mushrooms and get into, but then I feel like we'll be here, like, forever, all day. Yeah. But, you know, when he's, like, walking with the fox towards the giants and the camera, like, spins around and goes all the way upside down it never goes all the way back you know earlier in the film when he like it spins around and he goes from alive to a corpse it goes back around and you see him alive again but this time when it goes upside down it never goes right side back up again and I don't know what that means but I've like invented a million things it could mean because then he goes to the castle and the alt Alicia Vikander takes his camera portrait and when she does it He's upside down. and But somehow when he goes into like his future montage of what his life could be, the portrait is like right side up. So it's like maybe he's living in an upside down world 
in the and we're like in some sort of underground alt version of like what life is. I don't even know what's happening. I don't even know if anything that takes place after he goes upside down is even real. I don't know. But I know that going upside down feels like it means something. And I want to eat mushrooms until I figure out what it is. Well, I think that that's the fun thing about this movie. The visuals are amazing. I mean, like this movie is a film that you can really sit and we could get into all that. Like, I would love to talk about the giants and, and the whispers. And I would love to talk about the, I mean, it's just, you can sit there and break apart every scene. And I wonder if, as this film kind of grows in popularity and more people see it, if it becomes that kind of a film where, because I think the the themes are so interesting that I feel like people will continue to read into it. And I, I love that David Lowry is a guy who welcomes it. And and also, in welcoming it, isn't super coy. If you ask him what he what certain things means, he'll tell you. But also, won't be like, well, you're wrong. He's like, this is what I intended it to be, but what do you think? Like, And I think that that's a really interesting point of view, too. I, I, I love Ghost Story. I think Ghost Story is beautiful. And uh, I know that a lot of people go, oh, the movie where she eats the pie. But it's like, the, that movie uh, has this same kind of big questions and this idea like wouldn't it be amazing like what what would it be like to live that life that be that ghost like what you know what is this world to see and uh, I mean that it's bigger than that but like asking these very big questions about like something that we may think about or 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 say that we would want to do flippantly and and really get, goes deep and I will say uh, just one more just in not uh, in just celebration of David Lowry is like I showed my son uh, Pete's Dragon which he made, which is like a remake of the original live-action animated uh, Disney film. It's a, an incredibly beautiful movie, and it's it's uh, truly like it broke my seven-year-old. Like my seven-year-old wept in a way that I have not seen him weep. Like it's sometimes live-action movies, like it's harder to keep my kids' attention to, and the way that it broke him, and just and I love this idea that you can deal with really complex terms. And I feel like David is this director who is dealing with incredibly complex terms and can do it for a kid where a kid can feel like I've lost my friend, but my friend has gained something. Or you could do it in a, in a movie about relationships and death and whether that's breakups or whether that's actual the afterlife or whether it's a movie like this about what does it mean to be a hero or person in this world who cares or, you know, in a world where it's on fire, how do we become this thing? Like he can take these really complex ideas and make them emotionally so fulfilling and not just analytical it's all there it's like it's all like it's all there for you to take in and as much as you want to take in it's there for you this conversation could go on and on all all i'm saying is i think we both love it i'm so happy that we got to talk about it and i think this movie did connect with our audience because like we said it definitely came in uh, a solid first place uh but amy i'm sure because there's no uh there's no justice in the world that somebody did not like this (laughs) somebody did not and it's somebody who personally breaks my heart they're an icon to me. It is my beloved Kurt Loder. Whoa, uh, really? DJ. Yeah. Uh, he writes movies, of course. And um, and he just didn't think this movie was fun. He said, if you're going to play the King Arthur game, you might as well have some fun with it. The Green Knight is not much fun. The movie is low key and in parts obscure. And its relative lack of action will be a drag on some viewers' patience. Kurt goes on to say that he expects that some people might just even stop watching the film by the time we get to Joel Edgerson's castle. Um, and he says, you know what this movie could use? It could use a good dragon. 
Well, okay. Um, let me let me ask you a quick question about this because yeah. I also believe that there is, when you do something like this, that there is a, a preconceived notion of what you want to see, and when by the time you realize that you're not going to see it, you can't catch up to the movie. It's like you yeah, are by like the time you know, you're like there's no dragon. I was promised a dragon. It's like that the, what Grover book. There's a monster at the end of this. Yeah, book. like it's like you you get to the end and you're like, or you get to the middle and you're like, wait, this is what this is. I don't want to see this. And then okay. all of a sudden you're like, like it's hard. I think it's hard to go into a movie going like the the imagery is so beautiful. It's you know it's this poster with Dev Patel holding an axe above his head and it looks it has the sword and the stone kind of beauty. There's something about that image I think may make you feel that you know. I mean, I okay. I guess I have a point of connection to that. We went to go see the Moby Dick opera. And going in, we were like, oh man, I don't know how they're going to put a whale on stage. Oh, this is going to be so cool. And at some point we realized, oh my God, they're never going to put a whale in the Moby Dick opera. And we were so mad, furious. Right. All it was was a bunch of guys standing around going, queequog, queequog. And there was never a whale. I was so fucking mad. I can't even, I'm still mad. I'm still mad. Right, because it's like your idea of like what it is 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 you know it's a uh, yeah the yeah, preconceived they needed notion. a fucking whale. So Kurt Loder, I'm sorry you didn't get your whale. But that's not to say that it's like I would love to see him go back knowing what he saw. Yeah, and watching again because I will say that I like I said I loved this movie when I saw it. I loved it more the second time. Yeah, let's get Kurt some mushrooms and he'll like it more. Um, I'm by, yeah, by but, the way. Can, that, yeah. By the way, great that this movie could also be like a trippy movie too. Okay, but Paul. This movie makes me in the mood to do another medieval picture, something that is fun. What if we did Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. A picture so stunning in its effect, so vast in its impact, that it profoundly affects the lives of all who see it. One such film is... Very good, thank you. Yes, thank you. Next, please. Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. Uh, yes, thank you. Next. What's wrong with my voice? My voice is all right. My brain is wrong. That's more like it. Kurosawa's Seven Samurai is such a Ivan the Terrible. Herbie Rides Again, La Notte, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you do not open this door, we shall take this castle by force. I can see you're so excited. In fact, I'm going to let a fox say yes for you because I, of course, you know, I had to look up what a real fox sounds like. Here's a real fox talking in glee about being petted but also talking glee about the fact that we are going to be doing Monty Python next week. You can, you know where to find that movie. It's everywhere. We'll see you then. Hi. 
Hi, Finnegan. You good boy. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.